Last Sunday, we looked at the reunion of Jacob and Joseph, a good passage for Father's Day. It began with his son giving him the news that, in fact, Joseph was alive, someone he had thought for more than 20 years was dead, and that he was ruler of Egypt. The story continued, as we saw, with Jacob leaving his home in Hebron and heading toward Egypt. But on the way, he stopped at Beersheba, where his father Isaac had lived, where the Lord had appeared to Isaac. We are told Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. Then he offered sacrifices, that is Jacob, to the God of his father Isaac. And the Lord appeared to him and told him, I am God, the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Again, a wonderful passage for Father's Day. It's Jacob going to see his son, but on the way, his covenant being renewed, his relationship with God, the God of his father Isaac. And God tells him, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. God had forbidden his father Isaac to go. Isaac wanted to go because there was a famine and God said, no, don't worry about it, I will take care of you. But now he tells Jacob, in fact, to go and he will go with him. God is not a local deity. He is not not tied to one geographical location. Even today in our prayer, prayer request, we are praying uh, for someone who is providing medical care in South Africa on the other side of the globe. And God is there as well as he is here with us. And Jacob is told not to fear. It's one of four oracles, do not fear oracles, that are given to the patriarchs. Um, One thing, if you weren't with us last week, how is it that God says to Jacob, I'm going to bring you back here, when in fact Jacob would go to Egypt and he would die there? Well, at the beginning of the chapter, we saw that both names for Jacob were used, Israel and Jacob. And I would argue that when it speaks of Israel, it's thinking of Jacob's descendants. And when it speaks of Jacob, it's speaking of him personally. And so God is basically saying, your descendants will come back to Canaan. It'll be more than 400 years before they do, but they will in fact will return to the promised land. The reunion with Joseph was emotional, as one might expect. Joseph arranged for his relatives to live in Goshen. Then we were told about Joseph's economic policies. The famine was severe, there was no food, and so the people of Egypt and Canaan uh, wanted to buy food. And the first thing you buy with is money. But then the Egyptian money ran out, and so they came to Joseph and said, listen, we, we don't have any more money and we, we need some food. Um, otherwise, we're going to starve to death. And so Joseph tells them, bring your animals, your livestock, and give them in exchange for grain. And so they brought all their livestock. And I don't know if I mentioned this last week. I don't think that Joseph or the Pharaoh kept them. The people could keep the livestock, but now it belongs to Pharaoh. That lasted for a year, and then the people had run out of food, and they're like, take our land, take us, whatever you need, we need food in order to eat. 
the result is, we read, so Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. And there's more. In verse number 26 of the chapter, so Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today. By the way, Moses wrote this more than 400 years later. So 400 years later, people are still paying. The fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. They're paying a 20% tax rate. I argued last Sunday that, in my opinion, these policies were harsh. Took all their money, took all their animals, took possession of all their land, and, in fact, took possession of all the Egyptians themselves. And all in exchange for grain which Joseph, on behalf of Pharaoh, had taken from the people. So Joseph takes 20% of the grain from the people, keeps it, and then turns around and sells it to them, reducing them to being slaves of Pharaoh, basically. And I would just say it seemed really unjust to me. Well, there were some questions afterwards and throughout the week. uh, Discussions have cropped up. that I, I might have been harsh in saying that Joseph's policies were harsh. Um, setting that aside for a moment, I did say it was my opinion. Uh, but the main point I wanted to make was this, that Joseph's policies as recorded in Scripture were not intended as a pattern. If you're going to set up a country, this is the pattern you should follow, that you should have all the money, you should have all the animals, all the land, and the people should basically be your slaves. And let's set that aside, just a flat rate of 20% taxes. So I mentioned last Sunday, what we find in Scripture generally fits into one of three categories. That which is informative, it's a narrative. That which is instructive, it tells us what to do, what not to do. And then correction, when we're doing what we shouldn't do, we are corrected and told this is in fact what you should do. And we need to be careful, as I said last Sunday, not to take something that is informative and somehow turn it into instruction. So we are told this is what Joseph did. We are not told, and go and do likewise, that this is a good policy, this is what everyone or every country should follow. Much of Genesis is in fact informative. It's a narrative, and we can learn, and we have learned a great deal, important lessons from the stories. What we find in Exodus and beyond is instructive. God gives his laws through Moses. This is what the children of Israel were supposed to do. And when we get to the prophets, what we find is correction. Israel had gone astray, and the prophets are there to call them back into a right relationship with God. When we read the Gospels, We find all three. We find stories, the narrative, the life of Jesus and his ministry. Then we are told of the teachings of Jesus. So this is instruction. And then we have powerful chapters uh, like in Matthew 23, in which he condemns the religious leaders for the way they have led people astray. But in thinking this through this past week, specifically in connection with Joseph, I thought it would be helpful to revisit a basic aspect of the Christian faith. And that is, what is the nature of Scripture? And I'm doing this because I'm concerned that as a teacher, that I maybe somehow have turned Scripture into a textbook. 
and said to you, okay, now this is a textbook and part of it is informative and part of it is instructive and part of it is corrective. Um, I would argue the Bible is not a textbook. Then what is it? It is the revelation of God himself. It is God's special revelation to his people. And what is God revealing? He's revealing himself. If you Google it and ask about God's revelation, it'll say, well, he's revealing divine truth, or he's telling people what's what. Uh, I would say that, in fact, he is revealing himself. There are at least three ways in which God reveals himself. The first is in creation, and we hear this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. In Psalm 50, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge. And then the famous passage in Isaiah 3, where Isaiah had a vision, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Then in the New Testament, in Romans 1, Paul says something that is really quite astounding that I'm not sure even as Christians we fully embrace. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Paul says, listen, look at creation. Creation tells you of God's divine nature. And so people can say, well, I didn't know. I didn't have a Bible. I didn't know. Uh, Paul says it's all there in creation. So that's the first way God reveals himself. The second is in scripture, what we call special revelation in contrast to general revelation in creation. God reveals himself, his character, his nature, uh, his attributes. But the third way, the supreme way, is in the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews opens with these words. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. What the author is telling his readers is that Jesus is God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And if scripture is a revelation of who God is, then by extension, both the Old Testament and the New Testament are revelations of who Jesus is. One might think, well, this is just limited to the Gospels. Well, maybe some of the epistles, you know, they tell us some good things. But in fact, all of scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is a revealing of who Jesus is. Whether the passage is informative, instructive or corrective, all of scripture points to the Lord Jesus. It is a revelation of God in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, this isn't limited to the passages that we think of you know, as prophetic, you know, that tell us things about the Messiah who is to come. I would argue that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
Take, for example, the law, which God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, and then he turned around and gave it to Israel. Paul wrote in Colossians 2, Therefore do not, ju- do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are things found in the law, okay? And Paul says, don't let anyone judge you, okay? These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So all of these things, the new moon festival, the Sabbath, the dietary laws, they're all pointing to the Lord Jesus. They are a revelation of God in Jesus Christ. If you continue reading the passage, uh, well, Paul has a lot more to say about it. In Hebrews 10, we read, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. If you continue reading, it's talking about the sacrifice, that the sacrificial system was in fact a shadow of what was really going to happen, and that is in the death of Jesus Christ. Another way in which the Old Testament points to the Lord Jesus is through types or examples found in the lives of individuals in the Old Testament. As one writer put it, among the means thus used of God was the history of different persons through whom the life and character of Christ were to a remarkable degree made manifest beforehand. So the author continues, let's say Adam. Adam is seen as, in fact, the head of the human race. He's the first one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Christ is the beginning of the new human race, as Adam was the beginning of the human race. So there's Adam. There's Abel, who was murdered, but his death is seen as a sacrifice. Hebrews 12 speaks to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Noah provided an ark to save his family, but meant that the human race would continue. The ark was a refuge, as Jesus is our refuge. Melchizedek, we saw earlier in this series, um, after Abram rescued Lot and the people from Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, He met Melchizedek and gave him 10%. Uh, Melchizedek gave him bread and wine and blessed him. We read in Hebrews 7, so this is after the fact, centuries later in Hebrews 7, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the author writes, his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Melchizedek is one of those characters that just sort of pops on the scene. We don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about his parents, his genealogy, and then he's gone. But he is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. And he is a priest. And he is a type of the priest that was to come, and that is the Lord Jesus. Moses is a lawgiver, as was Jesus, and a prophet, as was Jesus. David was king. 
Jesus is king. But then this author makes this statement. The fullest and most striking of all these personages was Joseph. Of all the Old Testament characters who are types of Jesus who was to come, the one that is most striking and fullest in many ways is the person of Joseph, whom we happen to be studying right now in our study of Genesis. So what I'd like to do, relatively briefly, is for us to consider a partial list of ways in which Joseph was a type of Jesus. By the way, um, the author I'm referring to is A.W. Pink, and in his book, Gleanings from Genesis, he gives a hundred ways in which Joseph was a type of Jesus. I'm not going to do hundred, okay? But there are a hundred ways in which he is a picture of Jesus the Messiah who was to come. Even if I didn't give you any right now, some of you would already remember that Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and sold. And so in that, we see him as a picture of Jesus. The background to this terrible betrayal was the fact that his brothers hated him. You remember the story that Jacob, his father, sent Joseph to check on his brothers. He went to check on the welfare of his brothers. There are several verses in the Gospels I would point to. In Matthew 15, when the Syrophoenician woman, she's a Gentile, she comes to Jesus, her daughter is demon-possessed, and she asks Jesus to cast the demon out of her, her daughter. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Joseph wasn't sent out to look for random people, but to find his brothers. And Jesus says, God sent me into the world for the lost sheep of Israel. By the way, if you know the story, he did in fact heal her daughter. It was a testing of her faith. In Romans 15, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. In John 3, you know verse 16, but the next verse, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Joseph was sent out to find his brothers to make sure that they were okay, not to sort of shake his finger at them and say, what have you guys been doing? He was there to find them. But his brothers conspired against him because of his words. They saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. In an amazing chapter, I think, that often is overlooked, John chapter 8, um, Jesus is speaking to people who believe in him, okay? He's not talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He's speaking to people who believe in him, and they turn on him. It's really quite remarkable. It's like Joseph's brothers turning on him. He says, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. And he says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Joseph became a slave 
became a servant. He went from being his father's favorite, a whole bunch of issues with that, but from being his father's favorite to being a slave in a foreign country. And then we read that hymn in Philippians 2, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And I've mentioned this several times. Her name is never given to us. She's always Potiphar's wife. She's the unnamed accuser. Um, Jesus was also falsely accused, and his accusers are not named. I find that striking. Matthew 24, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. It's interesting that Joseph was accused of something that I would think in normal circumstances would have been a capital crime. He was falsely accused. Jesus was falsely accused because they wanted to put him to death. We are not told everything in scripture. It is not exhaustive, it is sufficient. We are not told that Joseph defended himself against the false accusation. We find the same with the Lord Jesus. And here we read the prophet Isaiah looking ahead. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Joseph suffered at the hand of foreigners, of Gentiles, Egyptians. And Jesus was put to death by Gentiles, by Romans. Joseph was included among the criminals in prison. We read in Isaiah again of Jesus, he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. There were three crosses that day, and on either side were criminals. Jesus was numbered with them. Joseph suffered before he was exalted. This is something we don't find in Genesis so much. I mean, we know that he's falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. Um, But in reading Genesis, we might think, well, this seemed like a cushy job. He was put in charge of the other prisoners. It didn't seem like it was too bad of a thing. But Psalm 105 tells us, And he, that is God, sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. Till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved him true. He suffered, but then he was exalted. He was exalted and set over Egypt. The people were to acknowledge him and his position. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of linen, fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. Men shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Again in Psalm 105, the king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him master of his household ruled over all ruler over all he possessed to instruct his princes as he pleased and to teach his elders wisdom 
goes from being a prisoner and suffering to being exalted. Again to Philippians 2. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From being a slave, being put to death, he is then exalted, and everyone will acknowledge him as Lord. A couple other things. Joseph was 30 years old when he began his life under Pharaoh. And we were told in Luke chapter 3, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Joseph was a source of grain for a starving world, a perishing world. Joseph alone could dispense this grain. People went to Pharaoh, that's go to the head guy, and he's like, Joseph is in charge of that. And in this sense, Joseph was the savior of the world. Because if you remember, the famine wasn't just in Egypt where the Nile provides fertile soil. It was also in Canaan where they get the rains. No, the famine was everywhere and Egypt was the source of grain. And in that sense, Joseph was the savior of the world. Having said that, his brothers didn't recognize him. It's really quite amazing. It had been 20 years since they last saw him, and he, no doubt he is dressed in a different way. And there's no context. I mean, why would they think, boy, that guy looks a lot like our brother. Um, but he did, in fact, recognize them. We are told in John 1 of Jesus, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Joseph recognized that God, in fact, was in control. God's hand was the one directing. He says, I am Joseph, your brother, the one you sold into, into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. As we saw when we went through this passage, here we see human choice, human freedom and divine sovereignty side by side. They coexist. Neither one is canceled. They sold him. God sent him. And why did God do that? So that he could preserve a remnant on earth to save their lives. On the day of Pentecost, Peter said this, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God had a purpose, but you people did this. You sold me into slavery, but God sent me to Egypt. If we're not careful when we read the passages about Joseph, we will see them simply as informative. After all, didn't Damon say informative, instructive, corrective? Um, 
And in the process, we will miss something truly important. And that is the purpose of scripture is to reveal to us our creator, one who is seen in his creation and one who is revealed in Jesus Christ. Paul told the Colossians, by the way, people he had never met, he'd never been to Colossae. In his first, the first chapter of the epistle, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All of scripture points to the Lord Jesus. And all of scripture must be understood in light of him. Otherwise, what we've seen as we've gone through these passages in Genesis will be a series of Sunday school stories for the children, for the kiddies, you know, and make sure they have something to color afterwards. Joseph's coat of many colors, that's that's a good one. Um, And we, as adults, will miss the point that it all points to the Lord Jesus. You see, the story of Joseph is not simply a story of a favorite son who's hated by his brothers who are jealous and they sell him into slavery. It all works out in the end. This too shall pass. It all worked out good. But in fact, what we have is a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah who came to his own, but they did not receive him. Who spoke words of life, but his listeners wanted to kill him who was betrayed, but said nothing in his defense, who was numbered among the criminals, among the transgressors, who was put to death, a death, by the way, to which he was obedient, but then was exalted at whose name every knee will bow. All of scripture is a revelation of God. All scripture points to Jesus. And if we miss that, we will have missed the whole thing. We will have missed the whole thing. One of the things that is uh, the big difference between us and Jews is how we view the Old Testament. They view the Old Testament through the writings of the rabbis, through rabbinic literature, the Talmud. The lens through which we are to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, but we're in the Old Testament now, is through the lens of Jesus Christ. See, if somehow we could all go back to like, let's say the first century BC, and we wouldn't know what we know about Jesus, then these things would just be stories to us. I mean, we can learn something from them, but it's only when Jesus comes into the world that the light goes on, it's like, oh, That's what that's about. That's what Moses is about as a lawgiver. David as king. Joseph as someone who was a slave and then is exalted. 
someone who is hated by his brothers for what he had to say. Years later, they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And his life was there to save their life. That's what happened. But we only come to see this through the lens of Jesus of Nazareth. And now the life of Joseph takes on new dimensions. It flashes out. Suddenly it becomes something much more than what we simply read in Genesis. It points to the coming of Jesus, who is the exact representation of God. He is the divine radiance. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for Scripture, but we confess that oftentimes we are not as diligent as we should be in our understanding of it, in our reading of it. If we're not careful, it becomes a textbook with different chapters. Some are instructive, some are informative, some are corrective simply becomes a reference book instead of being a revelation of who you are. And who you are is seen supremely in your son, the Lord Jesus. So all of it points to him. If we would just look carefully and think about it. We thank you for the life of Joseph that for many it's about the the coat of many colors or the betrayal of his brothers or how he became second to Pharaoh. But in all these things, his life points ahead to the coming of Jesus into the world. He came into a world that was perishing, that is perishing. It gave his life that we might have life. He came into the world and he was not recognized. And apart from your grace and your spirit, we wouldn't recognize him either. We'd see him as a great teacher, maybe a miracle worker, but not as the exact representation of who you are. So today, in a special way, we thank you for your word, the revelation of who you are. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. We remember Jan Sison there in South Africa and the amazing work she does, those who do not have medical care. We pray for the work that she does for her safety, that you would provide what they need as they provide medical service to thousands and thousands of people. Now as we leave this place, we pray that your spirit and your grace would go with us. That we would have a sense of your presence as we walk through this troubled world. May we know that you are with us every step of the way. As we read about Joseph, kept reading and the Lord was with him as a slave, as a prisoner. No matter our circumstances, you are always with us. 
because you love us. Thank you for your love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.